Facebook went offline this week, sending shockwaves of anguish throughout the world as people suddenly realized they'd been wasting their one and only lives on Facebook. The site came back on after six hours, causing users everywhere to breathe a sigh of relief at the fact that they could continue to waste their one and only lives. The outage was caused when something journalists pretend to understand but don't stopped interfacing with something else journalists pretend to understand but don't. Whatever the hell interfacing means. In being a complex interaction between things journalists pretend to understand but don't, the Facebook collapse resembled the American economy, American politics, the Constitution, and the shockingly rapid process by which these same uncomprehending journalists have been transformed from idealistic go-getters into walking dead corporate slaves, brainlessly uttering half-truths geared to increase the power of the powerful, while daydreaming they might one day install a Matt Lauer-style button under their desks that will lock the door while they sexually harass the interns. In the aftermath of the Facebook outage, horror stories about the six-hour blackout emerged. For instance, Michael Blitzman, who had 16,000 Facebook friends, suddenly discovered that he actually had no friends and was living alone in his mother's basement, even though his mother had died two weeks ago and was rotting away in a rocking chair like the climactic scene of Psycho while Michael was in the basement mucking around on Facebook. Likewise, Perky TV talk show host Sally Perky, who had been posting glamorous pictures of herself on Facebook's Instagram, along with adorable photos of her fun outings with her children, was startled to learn she was in fact a querulous hag overdosing on Zoloft and could not wait to give her spoiled brats back to the family's nanny slash drug supplier. And Scooter, America's favorite poodle, was forced to confront the reality that he's not America's favorite anything, but was instead the prisoner of an alcoholic homosexual who decked him out in humiliating pink ribbons to make him look gay while Scooter stood by helplessly because he didn't even have an opposable thumb with which to pour himself a lousy drink. During the worst of the blackout, Facebook users around the globe discovered there was a great big beautiful world outside their windows and that they would do almost anything to avoid participating in it. Luckily, many of the users were able to huddle for comfort on Twitter, where they spewed sardonic and foul-mouthed insults at one another in the desperate hope that their own cruelty would obscure the emptiness and futility of their lives until they could get back on Facebook. In response to the outage, Democrats demanded Facebook deal with the crisis by silencing any dissenting opinions that might threaten to expose the party's immoral and destructive lust for power. Republicans, meanwhile, wandered around aimlessly pretending they know what an algorithm is. And Facebook head Mark Zuckerberg issued a statement saying he took full responsibility for whatever the hell people were complaining about this time and vowed he would do better in the future as soon as he got back from the bank. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky. Life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bit easing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, let's go, Brandon. We are laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. We're going to talk about the FBI coming after Timmy's mom, the Democrats coming after Facebook, the Democrats are coming after everybody, and progressives are helping exterminate black lives, plus monster movies for Halloween and a mailbag question featuring four of the craziest words in the English language, I still love her. You want to go on Apple Podcasts. I know you do. You're hiding it from yourself, but you know you want to go on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. It helps us out so much, especially if you give us a five-star review. 
Also, you can go on the Andrew Clavin YouTube channel, my personal YouTube channel, and I will personally deliver fresh content to you, original content that you're not getting anywhere else. If you press that bell, uh, Santa Claus will come down your chimney, steal your silverware, and leave the content right there underneath the tree that for some reason is in your living room. Also, if you leave a comment on YouTube and the comment is sufficiently ugly, debased, uh, makes us all feel ashamed of ourselves, makes us feel a little dirty, we'll just read it on the show because it fits right in with the rest of the content. Cody Briner says, if Caitlyn Jenner said rock auto, would we get Bruce back? (laughs) Scientists are working around the clock uh, studying that very question. I'm glad you asked. All right, before we really start to get into it, I want you to know that people can see that you are on The Daily Wire, and that is sure to ruin your reputation as well it should. If you want to really stop people from seeing the sites you visit, you need to do what I do and use ExpressVPN. Think about all the times you've used Wi-Fi at a coffee shop, a hotel, or even at your parents' house. Without ExpressVPN, every site you visit could be logged by the admin of that network. And that's still true even when you're in incognito mode. Your home internet provider can also see and record your browsing data. And in the U.S., they're legally allowed to sell that data to advertisers, which is incredibly invasive. ExpressVPN is an app that encrypts all of your network data and reroutes it through a network of secure servers so that your private online activity stays private. ExpressVPN works on all your devices and is super easy to use. The app literally has one button. You tap it to connect. I use it every day. So stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash Clavin. Use my link at expressvpn.com slash Clavin to get three extra months free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Clavin. But you're saying, of course, I can spell ExpressVPN. How do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's. Before we get started, I just, you know, we pick on President and venal houseplant Joe Biden a lot. But this week, he actually said something that I found kind of inspiring. I just want to play it before we get started. It's cut 22. You build a charging station, it's like back in the day when my grandpa worked for the American Oil Company back in the turn of the, in the 1920 in that area. They went from state to state convincing people that they put, allowed them to put 20,000 gallons of gasoline under the ground. They didn't want them around. So keep that in your heart in times of this. Our, our, president, our president is a loon. That's, your, that's the president of the country. All right. Sometimes I, I have to tell you, the hardest thing for me during this period really uh, is is um, getting in my imagination what it is like for some of these lefties to do the awful, awful things they are doing to this country and not understand that they're the bad guys. It, it really is hard to understand. And I really do believe that a lot of it has to do with philosophy in a, in a way. It has to do with ideas. If you if you embrace an idea and that idea is wrong, it's going to get more and more, more wrong. And unless you stop and say, you know what, I've done the wrong thing. I'm now ashamed of myself. I have to say I'm sorry. I have to go back. Unless you do that, you're just going to keep going down that road into some very, very dark places. And so I'm going to start today just, just talking about a little bit about some of the philosophy on the left that I think is really important. And what it really comes down to is the idea that you can language away reality, that you can use language to create, change, and basically modify the human condition and all of life. I, I want to talk about a, a, a philosopher. Uh, and, and, you know, you want to watch this philosophy because people will bring it up. And s- sometimes it really sounds uh, 
it sounds rational. And you think like, what's wrong with that? I can't figure it out. I don't want to talk about what's wrong with it, right? There's a, a famous uh, philosopher of language, a college professor named uh, Berkeley University uh, named John Searle. And he talks about the way languages, language can create a new reality. Now, some of this is old stuff that Shakespeare wrote about. It's called what's called speech acts. When I say to you, I promise something, that creates a new reality, that there's now a bond between us. If you say, I marry you, I, I do, uh, at the altar, you're now married. And so that really becomes a new reality simply created by the fact that you have spoken something. Now, the reason that's true is because we assume that you have an inner person, an inner man, an inner woman, who is a real thing, a, a, an actual reality, has reality, and that when she says, I do, she actually means I have now become your wife. And it's just, it's not that actually the words create that reality, the words express the inner reality. But the left doesn't really think that's so. The left thinks the words are creating the reality. And this guy, John Searle, says that it's not only speech acts, there are these things called extra-linguistic declarations. Now, it's this is pretty simple stuff, so it's, it's worth paying attention to because I'm going to tell you how it plays into what some of the genuinely atrocious things that happened this week. He says, when God says, let there be light, it makes it the case by fiat that light exists. We ordinary humans do not have the ability to perform supernatural declarations, but we do have a quasi-magical power, nonetheless, of bringing about changes in the world through our utterances. We can create boundaries, kings, and corporations by saying something equivalent to, let this be a boundary, let the oldest son be the king, let there be a corporation, in the non-linguistic status function declaration, we do more than represent, we create. Now, that sounds right. I mean, after all, a country, you know, America could be two countries, it could be five countries, but we declare this is all one country. But are we actually creating that truth or are we uh, basically declaring a truth, say, stating something that has become true? The thing is, what is left out, it's always about what's left out. It's like when people say, oh, you can have you, a, a, an unborn baby isn't an actual human being because it can't make any decisions or it doesn't feel anything. That's leaving out the element of time, right? That, you can't make any decisions when you're asleep, but I can't kill you because eventually you'll wake up. You can't kill an unborn child because even if he's not cognizant at that moment, he will become cognizant. They leave out the element of time. Here they leave out the element of inner reality by which we know the truth of something. So listen to the way this plays out. In because I can say I can say anything, you know. I can say uh, there's a border here, but if I don't have the, the means to enforce that border, it's not a border. I can say here's a corporation, but if there's no corporation, I can say I'm at war with France. What what difference does it make? You know, the French are not going. Oh, McLevin is now at war with France. Get us the. We must surrender right away. But even to me, they wouldn't surrender. Now maybe maybe the French would, but you know what I mean. The part of this philosophy that gets buried. So now listen to how this now plays out. There's a big book going around uh, by a Harvard professor, Shoshana Zuboff. I'm reading it called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And she gives an example of how Searle's philosophy can play out in real life. Let's say, she says, the waiter brings my friend and me two identical bowls of soup, placing one bowl in front of each of us without saying anything. He has declared that the bowls are not the same. One bowl is my friend's and the other bowl is mine. Just by placing it down there, he's created this reality. He's made a declaration. We strengthen the facts of his declaration when I take soup only from my bowl and my friend takes soup from his. When his bowl is empty, my friend is still hungry and he asks permission to take a spoonful of soup from the bowl in front of me, establishing the fact that it is my bowl of soup. And she says, declarations are inherently invasive because they impose new facts on 
on the social world while their declarers devise ways to get others to agree to these facts. So in other words, it's only because of an agreement between us that a bowl is mine or a bowl is yours. There's no inner sense. There's no inner person who recognizes possession, who naturally recognizes possession. It is if they can change that reality simply by getting rid of the declaration, which is invasive. What is it invading? What is it invading to say this is my bowl? It is actually just stating something that you and I understand to be true because you and I are real people. We have an internal self and those concepts are ingrained in us. That's human nature. Now listen to the way this now plays out in the philosophy of Yuval Harari, an Israeli historian who's very popular. Bill Gates loves this guy. And I think the reason I think is because they're both autistic and they don't actually understand that there's a human reality. He says, Harari says, the ability to speak about fictions is the most unique feature of human language. He says this creates an intersubjective reality, which was a reality that we all share. He says intersubjective phenomena are neither malevolent frauds nor insignificant charades. They exist in a different way from physical phenomena. Now, among these fictions is what he calls them. He says, are nationhood, religion, money, law, and human rights. None of these things exists outside the stories that people invent and tell one another. There are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. All, everything he just said is untrue. We do tell stories, but those stories are either either relate to something true, tell us something true, or they don't. But you can. How many times have you read a book and thought, that ah, would never happen. That's ridiculous. People don't behave that way. Or you see a movie and think, no, that solution to the mystery didn't make any sense. Stories only work when they refer to a reality. And one of the realities we exist in is our reality, the internal reality of being human, where, in which we share many traits and also have many, uh, many traits that are individual. So when you say according to this philosophy, which is basically universal on the left, that this is invasive. When you say a man can't become a woman, you're not just stating a fact that has to do with the cells in your body and your genes and your physical makeup and your inner makeup. You are taking away that guy's freedom to declare that he is a woman. When you say that pedophilia is immoral, you're creating that reality. That doesn't exist. Like Yuval Harai says, there's no immorality. Morality, we just declare it. We tell a story and that brings it into existence. Barry Weiss on her Substack had a story by Abigail Schreier where she said two of the most important doctors who do transgender surgery are starting to say, hey, wait a minute, slow down. We're doing sloppy work here. This isn't good stuff. And one of them submitted an op-ed to the New York Times and the op-ed And the Times passed on it saying that's outside our coverage priorities right now because we're creating the reality that transgender people, people can change their gender. We don't want you to uncreate that reality. So we have this magical sense on the left. Men can become women if we declare it. Pedophilia can become moral if we declare it. Socialism is fair rather than oppressive because there's imaginary state that is going to do good for everybody because we say so. Black Lives Matter means Black Lives Matter. It's not, a, it's not some rogue organization trying to push socialism by other means. They want to language away reality. They believe they can language away reality. And the results of that error are catastrophic and wicked. All right, we are about to talk about something terrible that is happening. The FBI terrorizing the nation's parents for exercising their civil rights. 
You don't want to be terrorized by anybody. So you want a ring alarm security system. I know that I am much more at ease, whether I'm on the road or at home, when I can see what's going on around the house and know that there is an alarm system. A ring alarm equals peace of mind. Protect your home with the Ring Alarm. Ring Alarm is a powerful, affordable home security system that you can easily install yourself. It works seamlessly with other Ring products in one simple app. Ring.com slash Claven is the perfect place to go to start your Ring experience. You can keep an eye on every corner of your house, whether you're in the house or on the road. And you can talk to anybody who comes to the door using the Ring app. So protect your home anytime from anywhere with Ring Alarm. Go to ring.com slash Claven for a special offer on a Ring Alarm security kit today. You can build a system that's right for your home and have it up and running in minutes. It really is easy. That's ring.com slash Claven. Ring.com slash Claven. And if anyone comes to your home, immediately ask them, how do you spell Clavin, and if he knows, call the police. So let's take a look at the way bad philosophy causes people to do wickedness without knowing they're doing wickedness. Now, you have heard me talk on this show a million times about the value of not just femininity in itself, but also the traditional uh, feminine roles of homemaking and motherhood. And because you get tomorrow's news today on this show, you are now seeing that play out in the armies of moms who are showing up at school board meetings to stop the left from teaching our children racism and sexual disorder. That is what they are teaching in many of these schools. And they feel they have the right to say it. In Virginia, where a lot of this stuff is going on, Terry McAuliffe, because they're in they're basically, the Democrats are slaves to the teachers unions who give them so much money. Terry McAuliffe is running for governor again. He's an utterly corrupt politician. This is what he said about these parents showing up at school board meetings, uh, Cup 36. The parents had to write to veto bills, veto books, Glenn, not to be knowledge about it, also take them off the shelves. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually you take books out and make their own decision. You vetoed it. So, yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Good. He doesn't think parents should be telling schools or having the, or telling parents what books should be in schools. So let's take a look in Fairfax, Virginia, Fairfax County, Virginia, a mom named Stacy Langdon went into one of these schools, into the high school. This is not a, an elementary school. It's a high school. And looked at what books were there. And then she appeared before the Fairfax School Board to talk about the books that she found. Okay, this is cut two. I decided to check the titles at my child's school, Fairfax High School. The books were available, and we checked them out. Both of these books include pedophilia, sex between men and boys. Both books describe different acts. One book describes a fourth grade boy performing oral sex on an adult male. The other book has detailed illustrations of a man having sex with a boy. The illustrations include fellatio, sex toys, masturbation, and violent nudity. So she went on in this, and Megan Kelly on her podcast played the whole thing. I can't really do that. We have standards here. I can't put on it's, it. It is, I mean, it made me my throat close because of the ugliness and the celebration of little boys 
and it, I'm, I'm not kidding about this, you know, performing sex acts on men in the filthiest language possible. And these are graphic novels. They're, car- they're cartoon books. They're comic books, basically. So they're easy to read. And these are the books that are in this high school. Now, here is, according to a, the local paper, the Fairfax County Times, here's what happened at the school board. School board chair Stella Pekarski interrupted Langton, stopping her from finishing her remarks. Springfield District member Laura Jane Cohen claimed there were children in the audience, which I love because, you know, there are children in the school as well. But apparently other audience uh, members in attendance said this was not true. Even after Pekarski cut Langton's microphone, she, the mom began reading from Virginia code, uh, from the Virginian code, which said the school board was violating the law that says it shall be unlawful to circulate any notice or advertisement of any obscene item. Provident district school board member Carl Frisch, a gay man who has no children, he's on the school board, but he has no children, took the recess time after they shut the meeting down to keep this uh, from happening. Tweeted, tweeted, it's not every week the school board receives two exorcisms during public comment. That was a lie, by the way. They, people, people were praying. Uh, they were praying for the school, but they were not trying to commit an exorcism. Maybe he didn't realize, having never had any connection to God, maybe he didn't realize what a prayer was. He says, to be clear, nothing will disrupt our board's commitment to the LGB2 and all the letters, uh, students, families, and staff. Nothing. So, fi- you know, to say that homosexuality is necessarily pedophilia is already dis- a disgusting thing to say. I know a lot of gay guys who would like slug that guy in the head if they say, if they heard him say that. So this is going on all over, right? And the, the, the school boards are reacting by trying to shut the moms down. This is what I've been talking about. This is why the left hates homemakers. This is why the left denigrates motherhood. This is why the society conspires to tell you that women who take care of their children, who build homes, who build families, and who dedicate their lives to that while their husbands support that effort are less important than everybody else instead of what we know, which is the truth, that they're more important than everybody else. And as I've said before, the angels in heaven see these ladies. They know this is happening. They know that they are the last defense against materialism of all kinds, capitalist materialism, socialist materialism, and certainly this kind of wicked materialism that says this bo- your body is just a pleasure machine. And if it happens to be little kids you like, hey, knock yourself out. So the National Association of School Boards writes a letter to the Biden administration citing one threat of violence. And I'm sure people have lost their temper and I'm sure they've done wrong things and that's, that's not acceptable. And they compared the parents to terrorists within a week. OK, you know how hard it is to get the Department of Justice to do anything within a week. The corrupt attorney general, Merrick Garland, issues this statement citing an increase in harassment, intimidation and threats of violence against school board members, teachers and workers in our nation's public schools. Today, attorney general Merrick, a corrupt attorney general. I'm sorry, I want to give his full title. Corrupt attorney general Merrick Garland directed the FBI and U.S. attorney's office to meet in the next 30 days with federal, state, tribal, territorial and local law enforcement leaders to discuss strategies for addressing this disturbing trend. These sessions will open dedicated lines of communication for threat reporting, assessment and response uh, to, uh, by law enforcement, basically saying these parents, these moms are terrorists. And, and I think they actually use that language in the letter. The FBI is going after Timmy's mom, little Timmy's mom, little Jane's mom, you know, Dick and Jane's mom, is the source of terror to the FBI. Kirsten Cinema 
the Arizona Democrat senator who is standing against the Joe Biden Make America Socialist Again agenda. Is, we have MAGA, we have the MAGA hats, they have MASA because they remember fondly when they got to hold slaves before the Republicans ruined it with their damn civil war. So they have MASA, Make America Social, Socialist Again, remembering the good old days for Democrats. They're, they're not doing anything about that. They're not doing anything about that. They're not doing anything about the fact that Portland is on fire with Antifa violence. They didn't do anything about the riots that went on all summer. Nothing about that. That's, you know, a, guy, a, a kid shot up a school the other day and they let put him out on bail. But, but they're investigating Timmy's mom as a terrorist. Now, a lot of people on Twitter, the, those Democrat bots that they send out to shout at you when you t- speak the truth on Twitter, are saying, well, it's acts of violence. It's acts of violence. That's garbage. That's garbage because they say things like harassment. They use language like harassment and all this stuff. Josh Hawley hit the nail on the head. He was talking to a woman from the FBI. And here's what he says. Cut five. I think we can agree that violence shouldn't be condoned or looked aside from in any way swept under the rug at all. But harassment and intimidation what did those terms mean in the context of a local school board meeting? I mean, this seems to, in the First Amendment context, we talk about the chill, the chill to speech. If this isn't a deliberate attempt to chill parents from showing up at school board meetings for their elected school boards, I don't know what is. I mean, I'm not, I'm not aware of anything like this in American history. We're talking about the FBI you're using the FBI to intervene in school board meetings. That's extraordinary. You know, he's right about this. That Everything he just said is true. It's intimidating because they don't define what it is to be harassed. You know, it, basically, it's the declarations. They are talking about defending the reality that they are creating, the reality in which a man having sex with a boy is perfectly fine. They're creating that reality because it's only by declaring it that you invaded Empty space, empty moral space by making the declaration that that was immoral. Now they're going to take back that reality and create their own reality where it's moral. So they're not just trying to silence you. They're trying to stem your magical power to make things what they are and use their magical power to make what's not the truth. You, you understand that this fly, how how on earth, how on earth does Merrick Garland wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm sending the feds after mom. That's what I'm going to do. Mom, you know, Timmy's mom, she's saying stuff that I don't like. How does he look in the mirror and say that? How does he do it? And by the way, and, you know, our corrupt attorney general, uh, his daughter, Rebecca Garland, is married to Zan Tanner. And Zan Tanner is the current co-founder of a controversial education service company called Panorama Education. Panorama Education is the social learning resource material provider to school districts and teachers that teach critical race theory. So they are all in it together. They are all in it as one. And just so you know that all this reality is being declared into existence magically, right? Just remember that Merrick Garland and Mitch McConnell, you may hate Mitch McConnell. I have a lot of problems with Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is going to get into heaven. He's going to get to heaven. St. Peter's going to look at him and say, I'm not letting you into heaven. You're Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell is going to say, I kept Merrick Garland off the Supreme Court. It's going to be open the gates, Jack. Let in Mitch. Because he kept him up. Remember what the press was declaring was the reality about Merrick Garland. This is cut 33 from our friends at Newsbusters. 
The president has nominated federal appeals court judge Merrick Garland, regarded as a moderate, to replace the late conservative justice Antonin Scalia. Garland is a moderate, a centrist. On the bench, he's been a moderate, voting to uphold environmental laws, but often tough on criminals. As a judge, Garland is known as a moderate on the appeals court. The president has chosen a mostly centrist judge who's well-liked and respected, hoping to make it harder for the Republicans to say they won't even give him a hearing. <laughs> I forgot that he was a corrupt moderate. They left out the corrupt moderate and also a leftist and also a tool of anybody who basically tells them what to do. Pedophilia is immoral. It's rape. It's rape. Children do not have the ability to make decisions about sex. It's rape. And to rape somebody as a homosexual when when the normal order of things is to be heterosexual. I'm not saying it's bad to be homosexual. I'm just saying that the normal order, it is a disorder. The normal order of, of, of sex is to create children. That's why it's there. That is why people have sex is to create children. And yes, it is a pleasure. And yes, this is a delight. But it is rape for a, a gay, for any person to have sex with a child. It's rape. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. And so it's not, it is not something that we declare into being. It is something that is true. It is part of the supernatural realm above nature, a moral order that we all know exists, but the left has convinced itself that they can speak it into, in, out of existence and speak something fresh and new into existence. And the only trouble with that is they've got to silence you. So they're sending the FBI after Timmy's mom. Now, some of the stuff may keep you up at night. Everything keeps me up at night. And that is why I have a Helix mattress, because I like to be comfortable while I'm lying awake. You, you guys, who knows? You may want to sleep on a Helix mattress. Well, it's the right place to do it because Helix Sleep has a quiz, takes just two minutes to complete, and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. It doesn't matter how you sleep, which side you sleep on, or whether, like me, you don't sleep at all. There's no more confusion, no more compromising. Just go to helixsleep.com slash Clavin, take the two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life, or in my case, the best Line awake. Helix mattresses have a 10 year warranty. They're made right in America. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk free, and they will pick it up for you for free if you don't love it. But don't worry about that because you will. Right now, Helix is offering up to 200 bucks off all mattress orders at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. Get up to $200 off at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. As you're lying in bed, as you're drifting off into this comfortable sleep, you can ask yourself, how do you spell Clavin? And one of the one of the most important things the left has to do is it has to control social media. Social media, the Internet in general, really, was a breakthrough in their monopoly of the communications industry. They own Hollywood. They own the news media, the legacy news media, the corporate news media. They own the academy. They own publishing. They own so many methods by which we get information. But the Internet basically democratized information. And now these social media companies have become huge monopolies, really controlling information, and they have to get at it. So they launched an attack at Facebook because otherwise you might declare your own reality, which might actually be reality and shatter theirs, right? So today, this week, there was a hit on Facebook. And I saw this coming. I, I I read the Wall Street Journal and I open the Wall Street Journal. And the thing you have to understand about the Wall Street Journal is the op-ed page run by James Toronto. Best op-ed page, not only in the country, it's the best op-ed page I've ever seen. It's conservative in, in bent. It let, allows plenty of liberals to talk. It has different kinds of conservatism, but it's conservatism in bent. But the news side is increasingly woke and the news side is going off the rails. And they start to run this piece. And I'm reading this piece in the morning 
about, oh, a, a whistleblower has released secret information, secret documents from Facebook, and we're going to blow the, this wide open, right? And the first story is uh, that there are certain powerful people who aren't being censored, who are being allowed to say anything they want. And I look at the pictures, and who is it? It's Candace, our Candace Owens, right? It's Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump Jr. And I'm going like, whoa, wait, wait, just a minute, just a minute. You know, this is a place where this is this is Facebook is a place where you can't say that Dr. Fauci is wrong. You can't say that the climate is fine. You can't say that the government is lying about stuff. They can take you off for all kinds of things that the, that basically support the regime. But the problem is they're letting Candace Owens say what she wants to say. That's the problem. Unbelievable. So I'm reading this. I'm thinking they're being played. They're being gamed. Sure enough, the whistleblower comes out. And uh, our guy, Luke Rosiak, uh, good for him, caught this thing. Her name is Frances Hogan. And she come, he says, the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Hogan, has a record of donations to far-left Democrats and a history of raising issues about purported bias while at previous employers. She is working with Democrat operatives to roll out her complaint and has the same lawyers as the anonymous Ukraine whistleblower whose allegations led to Donald Trump's impeachment, but who reportedly turned out to be then Vice President Joe Biden's top advisor. The public relations firm of former Obama aide Bill Burton, a company called Bryson Gillette, helmed by a raft of Democrat operatives, is providing Hagen with strategic communications guidance. This was a left wing hit on Mark Zuckerberg, who has been reluctant to censor information. Now, listen, I, I believe these companies do need to be regulated. Everything needs to be regulated, obviously. And these companies are now monopolies. They probably should be broken up as monopolies, but they should certainly be kept from silencing speech. But the left wants to take that issue and turn it into an excuse to silence conservatives because they believe that they can create a new reality, a reality in which you're not oppressed if they take all your money and spend it the way they want to spend it in the way, instead of the way you decide to spend it, a reality in which it's not immoral for a gay person to sleep with a child, a reality in which a man can suddenly become a woman simply by declaring it because a declaration invades the space and creates this magic new reality. So Hagen uh, goes before Congress, and this is what she says. This is cut 18. My fear is that without action, divisive and extremist behaviors we see today are only the beginning. What we saw in and are now seeing in Ethiopia are only the opening chapters of a story so terrifying, no one wants to read the end of it. Congress can change the rules that Facebook plays by and stop the many harms it is now causing. We now know the truth about Facebook's destructive impact. Now that so, so a leftist run by leftists being sent out by leftists is calling on Facebook to be regulated. And the regime is right on board. Here's Jen Psaki and what she says, cut 20. In our view, this is just the latest in a series of revelations about social media platforms uh, that make clear that self-regulation is not working. Uh, that's long been the president's view and been the view of this administration. Uh, they validate the significant concern that the president and lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have expressed about how social media giants operate and the power they've amassed. And, and, and the incredible thing is that the media, right, which has been banging the free the First Amendment free speech thing. Whenever Donald Trump said, you guys are liars, it was, oh, oh, he's burning the Constitution, he's burning the Constitution. They say, no, good, censor these people because they're not saying what we want them to say because we're corporate actors. These guys are just corporate talking heads. Here is 
walking dumb person, Tom Levin, one of the stupidest people in media, cut three. He says, yeah, censor him. Facebook always says, well, you know, we, we walk a line between, you know, letting people, you know, the free and fair flow of information. There are ways to do that. We figured out ways to do that. And most people in legacy media, not everybody in legacy media, because there are people and propaganda networks in legacy media that spread BS and don't face enough consequences. But I do think that social media, just like any other um, media company, especially legacy media and traditional media, there should be they should they should face some sort of consequences and they should be regulated. That's just, and at the very least, what you put on there should be true. And if it's not true, then it should be actionable. These guys are really sophisticated. They are coming after free speech. That corporate head, look at his face. You can almost see the dishonesty in his face. These corporate spokesmen trying to stop, trying to stop the ordinary guy from having his opinion because they believe that they can create a new moral order. They believe this. They believe that they can create a new moral order if only they can get you to shut up and not create the moral order of freedom. You know, Cheryl Atkinson, she wrote a book called The Smear, I think it was called. Uh, She reported about, I don't know if you guys remember that pizza parlor in Washington, a guy came in and shot it up. The Soros-backed left-winger, uh, David Brock, who ran Media Matters, right? He bragged he was going to get social media censored. This is years ago, right? And shortly after this, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and other senators and, and important people started to make these speeches. No one had brought this issue up. Suddenly he said, you know, this uh, the Internet's wild, the Wild West. Obama was saying it's the Wild West. They've got to be gatekeepers. They've got to be ways of, you know, curating this information. Then there was this big conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton was insane, was running a pedophilia ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington. But the thing that Atkinson reported, she was a great uh, investigative reporter who got kicked off CBS for telling the truth about Barack Obama. It turned out this pizza parlor was actually owned by a guy who used to be Brock's lover, right? It used to be. So when some guy came in upset about these this kind of crazy conspiracy theory and shot up the pizza parlor, suddenly they said, oh, Facebook, we got to curate things. And that's how they got a wedge in. They started pe- uh, getting people like the Southern Poverty Law Center, this leftist hit uh, machine. It's a leftist hate group is what it is to come in there and say, no, this is misinformation. We're going to be the ones who decide this is misinformation. The other day, Google and YouTube announced that, they, that you cannot monetize climate denial. Now, everything about that is false, right? The, uh, when you say climate denial, it's like you're denying the Holocaust. Denial, that phrase denial comes from people who deny that the Holocaust existed. Denying the Holocaust is denying a thing that happened in the past that is one of the most well-documented atrocities in human history. Also, six million Jews are missing. So, I mean, a big clue that the Holocaust really happened. Holocaust denial is uh, illegal in certain parts of uh, Europe, Germany, and England, too. You can, you can be prosecuted for Holocaust denial. Climate denial is saying that a computer projection of the future is off base, as it has been off base again and again and again. Not only that, it's saying whether the climate is changing or not, and whether uh, it is human beings, human action is responsible for that change, it's not going to be helped by a bunch of 
elites getting on their private jets and flying to Davos to discuss whether you can drive your Volkswagen around the block. Because that's what they want. They want the power to tell you how much energy you can use, not how much energy they can use, like masks. They don't have to wear the masks because they're special. They're golden. They don't spread disease. They can use their, they can fuel up their private jet and fly off to the UN or to Davos, but you can't drive your Volks around the corner. That's what they're talking about. They are talking about seizing power. And if Google and YouTube say you can't monetize your protest against that power, what do you think is going to happen? And YouTube is banned. The accounts of anti-vaccine activists. And you know, you know, I'm in favor of the vaccine, but Sweden, Sweden just said they're going to pause giving the vaccine to people, uh, the Moderna vaccine to people 30 and under because they're seeing some heart problems result from the vaccine. Shouldn't we know about that? Shouldn't we announce that? I mean, you know, the CDC is saying the vaccine doesn't prevent uh, transmission. You know, these are things that we should know about and we should be able to discuss. It is unbelievable. But they believe they believe that they can keep the the reality being what they are. They're not going to wear masks. They're not going to wear masks. You know, play the piece of Rashida Tlaib. She's she's meeting. She's greeting uh, people. And she says uh, they somebody says, oh, you're wearing a mask. Maybe I should wear a mask. Listen to this. I'm only wearing it because I've got a Republican tracker. I'm only wearing it because somebody might see me not wearing it. I'm only wearing it because I want to create the illusion in the American people that they should be doing what I don't have to do because I'm an elite. How, you know, how do you look yourself in the mirror and behave that way? How do you look yourself in the mirror when you're a congresswoman and treat the American people like that? You do it because you are hooked into a bad idea and it is taking you down as bad ideas do. They take you down into a very, very dark place where that creating that idea, creating the idea that you can create a new reality, a new moral reality, especially where all the power comes to you, all the money comes to you. You get to decide. You get to decide who decides is what they're all about. And there is taking them to, to you want to see something really dark. I'll show you something even darker than that. All right, you don't want to miss the segment that's coming up next on crime. It really is a moving story. First, we want to talk about my pillow. I love my pillow. Again, I never sleep. I want to be comfortable. And my pillow wants to give back to our listeners. They want to give you great discount on all my pillow products. If you go to mypillow.com right now and click on the radio listener specials, get deep discounts on my pillow's mattress toppers, towels, and so much more. For example, my pillow is offering a buy one get one free offer on Giza sheets. These are top quality sheets that you will love. All my pillow products come with a 60-day money back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. Go to mypillow.com and click on the radio listener specials for the buy one get one free offer on the Giza sheets and use promo code DAILYWIRE at checkout or call 800-651 1148. You'll also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including pillows, slippers. Love those slippers. I really do. The MyPillow mattress topper and MyPillow towel sets. That's MyPillow.com and enter Daily Wire or call 1-800-651-1148 and tell them Daily Wire sent you. That's 1-800-651-1148. These deals won't last forever, so call now. So I want you to meet a little girl, six-year-old little girl named Ania Allen. We have pictures of her. You can put them up. She was six years old. Um, she lives in Minneapolis. She lived in Minneapolis. 
and she was having a happy meal when somebody came in and started spraying bullets uh, and Ania Allen was shot and killed. Here is her grandmother, uh, cut 10. They just keep shot two other babies out here and they're constantly killing our babies. That's not right. They deserve to live. They deserve to live. Six years old. No, that's not fair. She was so sweet. She loved everybody. She loved everybody. Good morning, Grandma. Good morning. I love you. She just loved everyone. She was so friendly. She didn't treat anyone mean. If you were mean to her, she still treated you nice. You know, she was just a little, a little girl. All she was just a lovable, lovable little, little angel. It was the 20th child shot in Minneapolis uh, so far, and it's probably gotten more. This was actually a couple of months ago. And I'm just reading from that story. A violent crime in Minneapolis up overall, uh, nearly 10%. Um, she was the granddaughter. Her grandfather was a former gang member, a guy named K.G. Wilson, who had left the gangs and become a, a peace activist. And he was a guy, uh, he is a guy, uh, who would stand up against the police when he felt the police were wrong, but he would also stand up for the police when he felt the neighborhood was wrong. He was a, a guy who was just about bringing peace to the neighborhood. Uh, and this obviously shattered him. It, it just uh, destroyed him. And here's, uh, here's one thing he said. This cut seven. I respect what Black, on, Black Lives Matter do as an organization or a movement, but when is Black Lives going to matter to us? When we do something to us? So he was calling on people, the neighborhood, because when these things happen, people know who did it. They know where, where the shooting was. Somebody knows, right? Uh, he was calling on the neighborhood to turn these people in, to turn them in. Or, or for the people themselves to turn themselves in, having slaughtered a six-year-old child. Nobody did. Nobody did. And he finally couldn't take it anymore. And he said, you know, I'm going to keep doing my work, but I'm leaving. I'm leaving Minneapolis. Let's cut eight. My anger got so strong, Reds, that I was losing myself. And, and I wanted to take justice on, on my own, not caring about the outcome of anything. And so when that, th that thought came up in my mind, I said, you know what? I can't do that. What you gave to me in return only was a murdered six-year-old grandchild and no justice. So the, the city failed him. He gave everything he had to the city. So he took his, his granddaughter. Let me just read a little bit of uh, Jason Riley, you know, good columnist, Wall Street Journal, uh, works uh, with my friends at uh, City Journal and uh, the Manhattan Institute. Uh, he wrote a piece about the about crime murders because this FBI uh, report came out of crime murders spiked by close to 30 percent in 2020. The biggest one year increase since 1960. Aggravated assaults rose by 12 percent. Violent crime overall increased by 5.6 percent from 20 19 levels. The left blames COVID, but the trend predates the pandemic. Violent crime, which more or less had been steadily declining since the early 1990s, began reversing course in 2015, not 2020. 2015. Violent crime and homicide rates rose in the U.S. in 2016 for the second consecutive year, driven in part by a spike in murders in large cities. The real surprise, says Jason Riley, would be if crime rates weren't rising since the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, seven years ago. There has been a concerted effort on the part of Democrats and progressives from Barack Obama on down to blame law enforcement for social inequality. 
Little children like Ania are being killed all over this country right now. They're being shot by random you know, bullets going wild all over the country, caught up in drive-by shootings. I showed you one face, but that's a lot of faces. Are American children being shot down? Michael Brown was a thug who attacked the police in every investigation by the Obama Justice Department, said that that's what happened, that he deserved to be shot. And yet there were riots afterwards uh, that destroyed Ferguson. It'll probably never come back to what it was. And it became a narrative on the part of the left, a declaration on the part of the left that they think think creates a reality, that these rare, rare, vanishingly rare events when a police officer either accidentally or just through being a, a brute kills somebody who doesn't deserve to be killed and that that this is somehow racist as opposed to the fact that black people are more likely to be in trouble with the police because black people commit more crime all of it's a lie every word of it is a lie every word of it is narrative it's all narrative and none of it is true this is a rare rare thing that happens in violent neighborhoods, mostly to people who are resisting arrest, right? The fact, you know, sure, is there a bad cop? As I as I say repeatedly, there are enough cops in this country to populate San Francisco. Do you know the names of any of them who've been killed by murderers, by thugs, by criminals? Do you know the names of any one of them? Any of the cops who've been killed? No. But you know the name of George Floyd, and you know that happened in Minnesota, and that's why I'm talking about this kid, Ania, who got killed in Minnesota, as the, where the crime right is speaking rate is spiking and where more and more children are being slaughtered. Now, on November 2nd, residents in Minneapolis get a chance to vote on a proposed charter amendment that would abolish the police department and replace it with a new public safety agency. The initiative aims to remedy state-sanctioned violence against black lives in the aftermath of George Floyd's tragic death. In other words, it's a drastic remedy to a problem that doesn't exist. It's a drastic remedy to a narrative, to a fantasy, to a make-believe atrocity that is not going on in this country, right? The black people come into contact with the police more often because black people commit more crimes, vastly more crimes. 50% of murders are committed by black people who are 12 to 14%, and it's really 7% because only men kill people. Only men commit murder. I mean, men commit 95% of the murder, so 7% of the country. Uh, Specific black men, not the majority of black men, but specific black men, so that's even a smaller percentage, are killing 50%, performing 50% of the murders. They're going to run into the police more often. That one, you know, George Floyd was killed by a roughneck cop who did not seem to me to be acting well in that. No one accused him in court of racism. That was just a part of the narrative, too. So now they're going to defund the police, abolish the police department and bring in, I don't know, you know, you tell me whether social workers are going to come in. Ilhan Omar is, Omar is all for it. This is cut six. So majority of the people in Minneapolis don't trust the Minneapolis police. And when you have an institution that has lost the trust of the people it's supposed to serve, then you have to make a big decision on what you do with that institution. And for so many of us, it is going through a process of dismantling that institution and coming together as a community to reimagine what public safety looks like for us. So they create a narrative because they think this is going to create a new reality. It's a completely created reality, a created narrative. They gin up people who 
are not getting are getting their information from them, right? They generate people into rioting, into uh, causing more violence, into causing uh, all this, all the problems that Minneapolis has. Minneapolis is like a war zone in parts of the city. And then they say, oh, yeah, we have to deal with this crisis by getting rid of the police and bringing, finding a new solution to crime. Crime went down because of good policing, because of extensive policing, because of low tolerance policing. But now they think this is going to be the new thing. And that child is dead because of them in part, because of them in part, because everywhere, everywhere Black Lives Matter appears, everywhere this narrative spreads, the police pull back. It's what they call the Ferguson effect. After Michael Brown and the Ferguson riots, the police pull back and crime goes up everywhere. It happens everywhere. So, you know, you can declare something and you can make that everyone believe it. And yet reality has a voice. You can't language away reality. If your declarations are so damn powerful, why don't you declare that six-year-old girl alive again? Why don't you declare her back to life? Why don't you put her back, declare that she's back in the arms of her grandmother? Why don't you make, you know, maybe you should silence me and demonetize me so I won't be talking about her so her life won't have existed, you know? Why don't you declare her back to life? You know, like you declare that it's okay for a man to rape a child. You declare that it's okay to teach children to hate each other according to their race. And then you declare you're not even doing it when you are. You know, if you're so powerful, if you're so damn powerful, if your words are so magical, why don't you declare that child back to life? Or instead, how about looking in the mirror for 10 bloody seconds in a row and thinking to yourself, maybe I've gone down a dark road to a dark place and maybe I am screwing the American people at every possible level, thinking that I can change the moral order when the moral order is set at a much higher place than ours. All right, coming up, we're going to start talking about monster movies, one of my favorite topics. And if you want to listen to some monster stories, you want to get some Raycons. First of all, that every monster story begins with that song that when you start them, it goes Raycon. That just makes the whole thing better. Whether you use them to pump up, wind down, work or work out, Raycons are my go-to for on-the-go audio. They're really great. They don't look like, they don't make you look like an insect. They block out sound. New everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever with an improved look and feel and optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit. These are impressive. Before you even start listening, you get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. There's also an all-new awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings instead. Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. Right now, my listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash Clavin. That's buy, B-U-Y, raycon.com slash Clavin to save 15% off on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash Clavin. I'm sure you know how to spell buy, but how do you, how do you spell Clavin? <laughs> I just make it look this easy. All right, I want to keep talking about scary stuff for Halloween. Last time we did horror, uh, and this time I want to talk about a different genre, which is monster movies. And monster movies, I have to say, are particularly dear to my heart uh, because when I was a kid, I just loved them, and especially the Universal Picture monsters. And, you know, most of you don't remember, but back in the day, back in the 60s, this was a fad that happened. There were these uh, models, these plastic models put up by the Aurora company. Uh, You could build them 
and uh, take them home. I, here they are. I, I love these things. When the Frankenstein one came out, I was eight years old, and I saw that in a store, and I was like, oh, I, my, you know, you know that toy that comes into your life? These things were so big that Mad Magazine, if you remember Mad Magazine, actually did a spoof on them in which Frankenstein was building a, an Alfred <laughs> Newman uh, model. But so I, I had them all. And if you ever read Salem's Lot by Stephen King, he has a little boy in, a, in the story, the lead of the story, has these monster models. And I remember reading uh, Stephen King's Salem Lot and thinking, that was me. That was me. I still, to this day, in my office, have little miniature versions of them that I, I keep up just to remember. Monster, you can't make any sweeping statements about monster movies, monster movies about this or that, because, of course, they're just about different things that frighten us. Uh, you know, when science became an issue, the mad scientists became uh, staples of of monster movies that would create monsters like Frankenstein. Uh, Frankenstein is a story about uh, in my book that comes out in April, The Truth and Beauty. I write about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein being a statement about the threat that science poses to femininity, to motherhood, because it's basically about a man who creates a, a life without a mom, without having a woman involved and, and the disaster uh, that arises from that. And that story, that idea of gender, of science threatening gender continues throughout uh, monster movies. Alien, a great monster movie, the original Alien is a wonderful mon- monster movie. And that's a story of a kind of in a kind of mechanistic future where these beasts are unleashed and they kind of look metallic and they blend in with the metal of the spaceship uh, and they implant life into men so that men take the female part and are blown to bits, uh, producing this horrible mutation of life. And a woman has to become the male hero in it. The Ridley character is kind of this um, mannish woman who takes on the monster. Obviously, Godzilla, the threat of war was um, Godzilla, uh, who was from the threat of nuclear weapons, right? Nuclear weapons were going to create these monsters. The best recent monster movie uh, by far, I think, by a long shot, has been A Quiet Place. And A Quiet Place is, uh, I believe, is actually, and even, th- I think this is true, even if the the creators, um, John Krasinski, af- ac- even if he doesn't know that this was about, I think it's about the internet. It's about a family uh, being torn apart by these monsters who hear every noise they make uh, so that they have to walk around on tiptoe. They can't say anything, they can't do anything. And all the little functions of a family from childbirth, the big function of a family, to saying grace, to teaching for the mother, teaching the children. All of it has to be done in silence where these things will come and take them apart. But to me, the thing I loved about the Universal Pictures monsters and these Aurora monster models, with the exception of Godzilla, is that almost all of them were the size of human beings. Dracula, the mummy, Frankenstein. He was a big human being, but still, he was the size of a human being. They weren't giants. They weren't these massive things. They weren't uh, animal-like monsters like the monster in Alien or the monsters in A Quiet Place. They were people, but with a problem, with some kind of horrific part. And that's kind of suggested uh, the monster is us. We have met the monster, and he's us. And each one of them really said something about the human condition. Dracula, for instance, is obviously has always been a very sexual uh, character. Bram Stoker, I believe, and I strongly believe was a closet homosexual. Uh, and he really felt that women and women's sexuality was threatening. And he wrote about the sexuality is threatening. And obviously, Dracula, uh, Count Dracula is a seducer uh, who takes control of women and seduces women and turns them into voracious, sexually hungry uh, people who 
feed on children. They actually actually feed on children in them. Uh, one of the wom- women who becomes a vampire in the novel Dracula uh, has to be killed by driving a stake through her heart. And it's a very, very sexualized scene. I'll read you just a little bit of it. It's a, a scene of a of a rape, basically. Uh, Arthur, who loves Lucy, and now she's a vampire, he placed the point of the stake over her heart, and as I looked, I could see its dint in the white flesh. Then he struck with all his might, drives the stake into her, and he says, the thing in the coffin writhed, and a hideous blood-curdling screech came from the opened red lips. The body shook and quivered and twisted in wild contortions. The sharp white teeth champed together till the lips were cut, and the mouth was smeared, and then the writhing and quivering of the body became less, and the teeth seemed to champ, and the face to quiver finally at least. So it's an orgasm. It's a description of an orgasm. So it's a very sexualized story. And Dracula lost the power to terrify when we lost our sense of sex as being a spiritual enterprise. The thing about Dracula is he has law. He lives forever, but he's lost his soul. And now he feeds on human blood. Right. But once you take away the concept of the soul, Dracula just becomes this kind of sexy dude. And that really happened in the 70s, I think, with the play Dracula uh, with Frank Langella. I saw it when it came out. It was a brilliant play. And Langella was fantastic in it. But he suddenly became the seducer who was kind of really sexy. We were almost rooting for him. And now you have things like Twilight, where the vampire is really just very, very sexy and not really harmful at all. And that's why, for me, the ultimate monster remains the werewolf, because he is the monster within. He is the self as a monster. And wolfman stories go back at least as far as ancient Rome. There have been shape-shifting and werewolf stories forever, really, into the primitive ages, uh, even in the story of... um, um, oh my gosh, <laughs> in the Bible story where the uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes mad and becomes a kind of animal eating, uh, feeding on grass. Um, you know, there, there's that. But, and in the Middle Ages, there were real wolfman stories where people were put on trial uh, for being werewolves and, and put to death, some of them, when they were convicted. Um, it's a, because, of course, that idea of the beast within fits very well with Christian uh, theology. The Universal Picture, Wolfman, was one of their best films, and it's a really complicated film. Uh, It stars Lon Chaney Jr., who was the son of the great Lon Chaney, who played the Phantom of the Opera in that famous silent movie. I'm sure you've seen the picture of his mask being torn off. He was known as the Man of a Thousand Faces. Lon Chaney Jr. was not a very good actor. He was kind of a clunky uh, guy. But the whole thing about it, this story was, I mean, for kids watching this movie, like I was a kid who had seen Frankenstein, the monster, and Dracula, uh, the monster, these scary guys. Suddenly you were dealing with a guy who didn't want to be a monster. He didn't want to be killing people, but he kept waking up with blood on his hands. And that's a nightmarish situation. Here's the scene from the Universal Picture. And I just remember this so well because I just loved it, uh, where he goes to his girlfriend and he wants to run away because they're chasing him because they believe he is the wolf. And he sees whenever he know he sees his next victim, he will see a pentagram on his or her hand. And he goes to the woman he loves to tell her he's running away. Here's that scene. Let me go with you. I'll fetch a few things and be back in a minute. No, no. I'm going alone. But I can help you. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Bela. I killed Richardson. If I stay around here much longer, you can't tell who's going to be next. Wait. It might even... Please. I've still got the charm you gave me, remember? Yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm afraid. Oh. 
your hand. Can't see anything. Mr. Talbot. Father, I'm going with Larry. No, it's no use. That's good, good dramatic stuff. He goes in to run away with his girlfriend. He hates the fact that he's a murderer. He looks at her hand. There's the pentagram. And he's he realizes that she's next. He's going to kill the woman he loves. So he's barred from love by the fact that he's cursed. Personally, I think the best werewolf movie ever made uh, is An American Werewolf in London in 1981. It's kind of a, a comedy, but it's really, really scary. And it starred this guy, David Naughton, uh, and he became famous doing these incredibly cute, cutesy uh, Dr. Pepper ads. Do we have this Dr. Pepper ad? Just a little bit. Here's a, the entire ad. Uh, here's David Naughton. This is what made him famous doing these ads. I drink Dr. Pepper and I'm proud. I'm part of an original crowd. And if you look around these days, there seems to be a Dr. Pepper craze. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? So a brilliant idea, the director John Landis, to cast this harmless-looking kid in a werewolf movie, and he makes him a nice Jewish boy from Great Neck, which is where I grew up, which is why I thought was hilarious when I saw the movie. Uh, And he... Um, Griffin Dunn, who had a long career as an actor, this actually kind of ruined David Naughton's career. Naughton had a career, but he was he was big for that moment. He was a real it was a real phenomenon. Those Dr. Pepper commercials and this movie was a, a hit. But he appears nude in the movie, and so they canceled his Dr. Pepper contract, uh, and th- that really kind of sent his career into a spiral. I don't think he ever made anything uh, with the impact of this film. But it was brilliant. These two Jewish kids in England, they're taking a hike on the rainy moors. Uh, They walk into a pub and suddenly the pub goes silent and the, you know, everybody starts to have it obviously has this terrible secret uh, that they're keeping. And finally, the two kids go off into the rain. And this is the scene. This is really very close to the opening uh, as they're traveling through the moors. Wait a minute. We're lost. Oh, shit. David, what is that? I don't know. Come on. Come on, where? Anywhere. I think we should just keep moving. It's moving. It's circling us. Ah, What's the plan? Plan? Let's just keep walking. Let's ride a lovely stroll on the moors. Tra la 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 la. Isn't this fun? It's in front of us. <laughs> what makes it work, what makes the whole picture work is the, the niceness of the ordinary American kind of goofy niceness of the kids. Uh, the fact that they're nice Jewish boys out in the moors. But what's really fascinating about it is it doesn't focus on the aftermath of the transformation into a werewolf. It focuses really on the transformation itself. And it's genuinely a frightening movie. I mean, frightening in a very good way, a very spooky way. Um, it's, it's funny, but it is also really frightening. And it focuses on this transformation. And of course, part of the transformation is exciting and good. He's becoming animalistic. He's being freed from this good, good, nice Jewish boy role, and he's suddenly becoming 
a monster, which is what every nice little boy kind of dreams of being, right? He's becoming this sexualized monster. And what's wonderful about it is it doesn't have the problem that Dracula has once you just sexualize him and take away the fact that he is soulless, right? You've completely lost the point of the horror, right? But if you do that with a vamp, uh, with a werewolf, it becomes even more horrible that it is delightful. It is delightful to change and to become powerful. This was picked up on a picture that is essentially a werewolf picture, even though it's not about a werewolf. A Wolf, which is a remake of an old movie, a 1958 film called The Fly. And this was with um, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. Uh, He gets in. He's trying to transpose uh, one person from one chamber to another. He's trying to teleport, basically. But a fly (laughs) gets into the other teleport chamber and mixes its DNA with him. And he begins to change. And one of the ways he begins to change is he becomes strong. He becomes more perceptive. He becomes, uh, you know, his mind starts to perceive things that it's never perceived before. And he starts to realize that there is this kind of, the flesh is, is powerful. And Gina Davis, his girlfriend says, you know, something is going wrong with you. And he doesn't want to hear it. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. No, not you. You're too chicken sh- to be a member of the Dynamic Duo Club. Okay, then great. I'll find somebody else. Somebody who can keep up with me. Seth, you have to listen to me. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? I bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the flesh. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, grave fear of the flesh. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. And what's wonderful about this it's David Cronenberg, so it's filled with disgusting images, which I, I'm not a big fan of. It, you know, he's very, he loves to be graphic, disgusting images. But what's wonderful about it is it shows you this sort of Nietzschean Superman as a fly. And that's, that's a wonderful uh, idea. And that's why the horror remains with the werewolf. If you do it right, the horror remains because it feels like power, but it's actually destruction. And he, show, and he really shows you how this sense of genius, the sense that you see something more than anybody else, can lead to becoming essentially a human insect, an amoral insect. I, have, I, I cannot keep from saying that my own book, my the one book where I have to say Ben Shapiro is right, I gave it the worst title on earth, it's called Werewolf Cop, is a, it's one of my favorite books that I've written. Uh, and it is a book that looks at this from a purely, not a purely, but a an essentially uh, spiritual, Christian spiritual uh, point of view of what it means to have this beast inside you and what, what your responsibility is and what the path to evil is and what the path back from evil is. Uh, it has a scene in it that is the, scene, the one scene that every single person mentions when they read the book, which is a scene between the guy who is the werewolf cop, a guy named Zach Adams, and his wife, uh, which is perhaps the only scene in modern American literature where a an evangelical Christian housewife is the hero of the scene. <laughs> it's the only scene. And it's really a scene about uh, the the beast within and about grace. 
And Grace, of course, is the opposite of the monster movie. Grace is the thing that says to the beast within, uh, you can be free. You can be freed of this monster. You can be set into a new level of forgiveness and a new level of love, which is the opposite of the werewolf. Love monster movies, still love them, thought A Quiet Place was as good as it was possible to be. And next week, I think we'll talk about my favorite uh, spooky genre, which is the ghost story. All right, a new documentary is coming out about Christian movies. We will talk to the man who made it, a pal of mine. But first, let us talk about rockauto.com. Why? Because we love saying rockauto.com and it drives the women crazy. Why does it drive the women crazy? It's not It's not just the, the sound of it, the sound. You got to admit, rockauto.com, it's, it's a great sound. But also it means that you know where to go to shop for auto and body parts and you don't get in your car, which isn't working because it needs a part, and sit there and pretend to drive to some stupid store where the guy doesn't know any more about auto parts than you do. And he's imaginary because he can't drive because your car's not working. Women want to know that you're a little smarter than that and also that you have a voice that can say rockauto.com. So just say rockauto.com and go to rockauto.com for a great selection of auto parts at great prices. Go right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know we sent you. But say it the same way. You got to say Clavin. You got to spell it like a K-L-A-V-A-N. Also, this coming Tuesday, October 12th, we're making Backstage Extra Exciting. Instead of the usual Daily Wire studio, we'll be live streaming our conversation on stage at the famous Ryman Auditorium right here in Nashville, doing what we do best, making sense. Am I invited to this? Oh, I guess so. This will be an event in a live stream unlike any other we've done, and we're thrilled to be able to share it with all of you. Plus, we'll be making some extremely exciting announcements, which you will not want to miss. So be sure to tune in. Join me, Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens, Jeremy Boring, Michael Knowles, Matt Walsh, and our live audience for a backstage like never before. Tuesday's live stream will begin at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central. So head to dailywire.com or dailywire YouTube to catch the show. Also, as the legacy media continues to spin the news, if not completely butcher the news, our newest podcast, Morning Wire, continues topping the Apple and Spotify charts, and we're continuing our commitment to bringing you the news without a hidden agenda. It's the only daily podcast that values your time and the truth. And while we're working overtime to bring you the news you need to know, we need your help to keep the facts trending towards number one. So subscribe and start listening now to Morning Wire on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a five-star review. So I'm really happy to have my pal Tyler Smith back on. It's been a long time since we've talked to him. He's a film critic, a college professor in L.A. He's written for a lot of outlets, uh, and he runs a, uh, a co-host of podcast, Battleship Pretension, uh, which recently, recently put out the book, The 101 Best Films of the 2010s. But he's made a documentary called Real Redemption, which is about religion in films. It got a rave review from Christian Toto at Hollywood in Toto. Uh, here is a trailer. The story of the church's relationship with Hollywood is long, complicated, and even a little melodramatic. This is my church! The Bible, of course, is terrific, but for millions of people, pictures will be their reference point for the story. While faith is a difficult concept to nail down visually, the impact of faith is not. I want to compare faith 
to running in a race. It's hard. To show God is to limit him. So when depicting God, the filmmaker has his work cut out for him. Yes, why do we have to have evil? Ah. I think it's something to do with free will. The intersection of faith and film is more active, more aggressive, and more alive than ever before. Why now? Tyler Smith, it's good to see you. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right. How are you? All right. I, congratulations on that great review from uh, Christian. Oh, Dota. thank you very much. So I, yeah, I, it's been rev- it's it's actually been reviewed by a number of outlets. Only one uh, had a had some bad stuff to say about it, which is Movie Guide, which is a, a Christian outlet. But you know what? Based on other stuff I've seen, I feel like I win. Yeah, and and they they have a very narrow point of view. I mean, they they want very specific things, and and you have always said that. Just because it's Christian doesn't mean it's good. And apparently in this documentary, (laughs) put that that forward. Um, But Hollywood, Hollywood has always had a kind of tense relationship with religion, right? I mean, this is this is an actual history. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, The film is split up basically into two halves. The first half is sort of history. And then the second half is, for lack of a better term, analysis. Um, And so it's just talking about the. The yeah. Tense is a good word for it. The tense uh, or at least tenuous relationship between Hollywood and the church, which can mean in this case, the Catholic church, the Christian church, that sort of thing. Um, And then probably, I mean, honestly, probably around the 1960s or 70s is when it started to kind of split because of, I mean, I don't want to go through the entire history because everything leads to everything else. But um, essentially, Hollywood, in an attempt to pull people away from television, they made some some major stylistic changes, like really embracing color and a different aspect ratio, that kind of thing. But the, the thing that they realize is like, well, you know what? Like, when it comes to just uh, what we can feature from a content standpoint, we've all just been agreeing not to incorporate sexuality, profanity, stuff like that. Whereas the, whereas TV is required not to do that. So, you know what, let's just drop this and embrace the rating system and we'll bring people in. And that's absolutely what happened. And then there was really, and the church felt, and of course it's silly to talk about the church as one monolithic thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm speaking broadly, but like the church felt a little bit, uh, betrayed and felt like, well, we've always been sort of catered to, uh, so why aren't you doing it now? And then they say like, well, it's just about money. It's like, well, it's about money to a certain extent. But some filmmakers also really appreciated that level of, of freedom, like a Martin Scorsese and, and that sort of thing. So there's there's so many reasons. But, yes, it definitely parted ways probably around the 60s or 70s. And, and it d- does seem to me that at some point Hollywood actually had had respect for actual religious content. So uh, Bing Crosby could be a, a lovable priest and, um, you know, yeah. the the uh, the pictures about like Ben Hur was a very, very respectful picture about uh, the Christ where you never see his face. And there were oh, there was all kinds of religious content which seemed to be made almost by if not by religious people, at least for religious people. Um, yeah, it's I mean. Because there, because if if nothing else, like Hollywood, and there are there are multiple reasons, but like Hollywood loves spectacle, and hey, the Bible is is a big spectacle, so yeah. it's like let's let's have Ben Hur, let's have like the Ten Commandments and stuff like that, uh, because that gives us the opportunity to like really have big movies, and that's another, and even though that goes back to the silent era, like that's another thing that they have over TV or theater or something like that. Um, 
but yeah, and then then sensibilities shift. And and I do think that within Hollywood, I think there was a respect for the audience because there had to be. And then after a certain point, they realized, especially again, like in the 1960s, when they realized like we we should try to go for a younger audience. I think they I think they uh, sort of opted out of that and whatever potential hostility was there maybe came a little bit more to the forefront. And that's sort of where it has has stayed. And it's mutual. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I, I was looking recently at, at the number of biblical films that were made bef- right before The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's smash hit. Yeah. And there, weren't, there just weren't that many. They And they almost stopped making biblical films. What did Gibson's film change? I, I mean, it's it's so much stuff like it's the it's the the model, the release model, because he made it independently and he distributed it independently. And of course, independently has to be in quotes because he was extremely wealthy, but he did. He did it independent of major studios. Um, but it's certainly something he could he could afford. Um, but uh, but yeah, and it's I think it's just. What really changed it was there was a a lot of the story around the movie, like shopping it to studios and it being rejected and all that sort of thing. Um, and so that really sets up from a from a marketing standpoint, standpoint, from a publicity standpoint, it sets up the us versus them. Mm. And there's this idea and it still it still sticks around a little bit with certain Christian films, this idea of let's let's show them, you know, let's show them what they're missing and let's embrace these movies. Sometimes they're they're really slick and really impactful, like The Passion of the Christ. Other times I'll just say less so. But either way, there is that feeling of we need to send them. That's the big thing. We need to send a message to Hollywood that that we're an audience that deserves to be considered. Um, and the, and I think the message has mostly been received. Like you get Sony buying Pure Flix, uh, I feel like in the last year, even maybe just a few months ago. And and you have more films getting a green light. And then you have a lot of studios sort of having their offshoot, uh, like their their faith based offshoot studios. And so. I think it came like as the case with anything. I think uh, Hollywood sort of forgot that the faith based audience is an audience and that they can try to cater to them. Sometimes they do it. Sometimes they fail, like with Noah, a movie that I actually thought was pretty good um, and Exodus, Gods and Kings, which I was back and forth on. Um, And so like there's this it's been an interesting thing to see in the last 10, 10 to 15 years, like Hollywood trying to cater, not knowing how to cater and then being like, you know what? These people over here seem to know. So we'll just give them money and they can do it because we're 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 out of ideas. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I and mean, I, I had this funny experience, uh, the God King of the Daily Wire and I, Jeremy Boring, we co- collaborated sure. on a script uh, about Samson and Noah came out. And I thought the problem with Noah to me was that God destroyed the world for environmental reasons <laughs> instead of yeah. reasons involving sin. And, you know, with with uh, the God and Kings, uh, with the Moses picture, Christian Bale came out and said Moses was a terrorist. When we handed in the script to my agent, uh, he said, this is the best biblical script I've read in 20 years. But biblical scripts don't make money. And I said, well, they don't make money because you offend the people who are coming to see them. It was almost as if Hollywood wanted to co-opt the Bible. I I mean, there is I I guess what I'm trying to get to is isn't there an actual hostility toward religion and toward the faith based community uh, at at some level of Hollywood? I would say at at various levels, but not but I don't think it's necessarily universal either. I do think it's I do think it's there, though. Um, and I think, you know, it's probably not a great call again with Noah visually gorgeous. That sequence 
in which he's telling like the story of the creation, which is just like this long montage. It's some of the most beautiful filmmaking I've ever seen. But at the same time, if you're familiar with Darren Aronofsky, <laughs> the filmmaker, he'd made like Requiem for a Dream. And, right. and then he had made after Noah, he made Mother yes. with an exclamation point, which is also a fascinating film, but one that is absolutely suspicious. Uh, you know what? I won't even say suspicious. It's it's hostile towards religion. Yeah. Um, as as audacious as it is. And I do think that uh, that, yeah, there there are people who are genuinely reluctant, if not just straight up stubborn about not wanting to embrace religion the way so many other the the more like devout people do. Like, yeah, we may put our, our own spin on it. We can do that. Uh, but, yeah, we certainly don't want to make something just straightforward. We don't want to make the Ten Commandments. We'll find some other way to come at it because, uh, God forbid or not, uh, we be this, we have anything in common with this group that we so seldom uh, disagree with on on many levels. So you, one of the things about the, the people who are making religious pictures, the faith-based pictures, is that I, they tend to have a certain kind of sameness, a kind of um, you know, uh, uh, kind of blithe optimism about life. I mean, I I, I saw uh, God is not dead, and a guy a guy gets hit by a car, and they don't even like stop to say, "Gee, that's kind of tragic." It's like, "Oh, he's gone to heaven, hurrah!" Yeah, they <laughs> they intersperse his. Shouldn't you call the widow first? His death yeah. scene. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I incidentally, um, in a, uh, <laughs> uh, I wrote for Daily Wire uh, like a year ago. Uh, and I, I wrote a number of articles and I pitched an article to them of the worst movies of the 2010s because I had done an article of the best. Right. And I cite God's Not Dead as the worst uh, on a number of levels. As a Christian, I'd say it embarrasses me. As a film fan, it infuriates me. Um, but yeah, there is the the thing that tends to bother me about Christian film. And in, and in this documentary, I try to be as as fair to Christian film as I am able to be. Um but uh, what bothers me is I don't think anybody's doing it on purpose, but I think it's a dishonesty. I think it's people who say like, hey, we need to sell this. We need to sell Christianity either to people who don't believe it or we need to affirm the people that do believe it. And in, and anytime you're trying to sell something, you're going to reduce it. You can't help it. And you're going to put as positive a spin on it as possible. And so it's this idea. Now, granted, that character does die and go to heaven, but he's been an atheist all the way through the film, like a very outspoken atheist. So in a way, like, yes, on one hand, it's a victory, but on the other, uh, like it's a, it's a triumph for him, but it's also like, ha ha, see <laughs> when the chips, you know, when the chips are down, this uh, hardcore atheist, he's going to agree with us. And it's just that sort of thing like the, uh, and I feel like it's starting to change even in the time since I put, uh, this documentary out where you start to see a little bit more acknowledgement that like, Hey, just because you believe this doesn't mean your life is going to go great. Like there, there's no guarantee of that. The Bible certainly doesn't guarantee it. It simply guarantees you a deeper hope in order to get through that harder stuff. But I feel like a lot of films for a long time were like, well, that's not going to sell. So, uh, let's, let's, uh, Let's cheer this up a bit. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, there was a film that I kind of liked with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio called uh, Revenant. Uh, and I thought that, oh, that was... Oh, yes, a, I know. Yeah, a deeply religious film. And I wrote about it and I just got, I got lambasted. I mean, for weeks, people were writing me hate mail. How could you call this religious film with all the violence and more yeah. language and all this stuff? What, what do you like in terms of current religious films? Are there films where you say like, yes, that's the direction we should be going? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Terrence Malick and I know that a lot of people aren't, he's not a story, even when he has a story to tell, he's not a story guy. Mm -hmm. He's a feeling guy. He's an ethereal guy. And he, whether it be with tree of life or most recently 2019, he made a hidden life, which I uh, loved. I absolutely loved it. It's almost three hours long. He gives it the epic treatment, even though it is the story of just one guy who refuses to, uh, it's man for all seasons S in that regard he, he refuses to uh publicly support hitler uh even though there are some religious figures in his town that are that are good with that and as a result he winds up being put in jail and taken away from his family and it's a uh, it's a beaut it's a visually gorgeous film with wonderful acting and it really brings up this question because obviously from a faith standpoint we're very much in favor of living out our faith publicly but one thing that is said over and over again to him while he's in jail is no one is going to know about this. Mm -hmm. No one is going to be inspired by your story because it's not going to get out. And at the time, it didn't get out. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, it's out now. But so movies like that. And then I also find the movie First Reformed fascinating. It's very complex, as one would expect, because it's written and directed by Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver. And right. he wrote he wrote Last Temptation of Christ. So like there is good stuff being made right now that is as complex as it should be. And then I've also been hearing good stuff about Midnight Mass, but I haven't watched it yet. Everyone says it, that I should watch it, but I haven't, I haven't you know, gotten a chance to see it's it. It's funny. I started and I thought it was going to be, it was, I thought it was going to insult me. And then I started getting calls. No, no, it's really good. So I'm going to go back to it uh, and finish it. Tyler Smith and the film is called Real Redemption. Where can we see it? Uh, it is available on the Faith Life. It's a very small streaming service. The Faith Life TV streaming service. It's five bucks a month, uh, but don't. Don't tell anybody you can get you can get two weeks free if you want. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and then just just uh, I know we got to we got to go. But I will say I actually have another documentary coming out in like three weeks, uh, which is I, I feel like you would find it interesting. It's called Valley of the Shadow, the spiritual value of horror. Oh, and so send, yeah. um, send me a copy. So and we'll I'll, talk about that. I yeah. absolutely will. I absolutely it's great will. to see you, Tyler. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Andrew. All right. It's time now to pack up all your care and woe. Here we go, swinging low. It's the mailbag. You can hear the chants from the, the crowd. Let's go, Brandon. Yeah! <laughs> let's go, Brandon. All right, let's go. I love that. that that's going to keep me laughing for a long time. Uh, from Elise, what is your opinion on the existence of rape culture in America? I've heard some compelling arguments from Stephen Crowder. Please forgive me, Lord Clement. Yeah, if you're listening to Crowder, uh, what can I say? What can I say? Uh, Crowder says it doesn't exist. Rape culture doesn't exist. But I don't see many other conservatives debunking or supporting this claim. I was sexually assaulted as a teen and grew up with this feminist cynicism of how our legal system handles rapists. I've recently seen the light and abandoned my gung-ho feminism thanks to The Daily Wire. Uh, but this one issue is still bothering me. I've heard of so many cases uh, getting dismissed and communities defending the rapist for being in his prime with too much to live for and standing up for the rapist basically over the victim. Uh, do you think that the American people really have the mindset of letting rapists off the hook? Uh, do you think our legal system is usually just in their judgments on these cases? Or could this even be that the media has scared true victims senseless so we hide our stories? Uh, I truly want to pursue the truth and not let my own experience dictate how I view society as a whole. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and thanks for all you do. Yeah, let, let, let me put it to you this way. Rape culture is a bumper sticker and as such, it's stupid. It is a stupid, simplistic, 
uh, accusatory, divisive way of dealing with a difficult, complex topic. Okay, because there's no there's no right side of this. There are many, many factors that come into play. We used to say when I was a kid, rape is the easiest charge to make and the hardest one to prove. And that, you know, there's a lot of truth to that because a lot of women and and any prosecutor will tell you this, cry rape for a number of different reasons. Revenge, uh, regret, because they don't want to be get caught having slept with the person they slept with and they therefore accuse them of rape. This happened. This actually does happen. Prosecutors who are expert in rape know that this happened. And because rape is going to take place between two people, right? It's not going to happen in public and there aren't going to be witnesses. It's very hard to know the truth. And the person who is accused deserves the benefit of the doubt. Now, let me pause there for a minute. Why does the person who's accused uh, deserve the benefit of the doubt? The feminists say, well, it's because he's a man. No, it's not true. It's because he's the one whose life is, is now on the line. Obviously, the victim has suffered. The victim deserves justice. But the person who's accused has his life on the line. And that's why we, the, the court system is weighted toward the accused. You need proof. You need the police have to follow certain rules before they can get that proof. And in rape, that proof is very, very hard to find. Now, having said that, having said that, it is true, I think, that there can be a dismissive quality to the way rape victims are treated as if uh, being raped you know, you weren't hurt, were you? That kind of thing. You know, you weren't hurt. It was just sex. What did you think was going to happen uh, when you walked down that dark alley? What did you think was going to happen when you dressed like that with your uh, high skirts and, you know, all this stuff? And, and so I think both things are true, that the men uh, can be falsely accused and can be denied their due process, which should never happen, and that the women can be ignored and their complaints neglected. And that can also happen. And, you know, what what can you say about a situation that is as complex as that? It is probably the crime most people consider the most heinous crime next to murder. But it is also a difficult, difficult crime to prove. And there are all kinds of gradations and all kinds of, um, uh, you know, all kinds of subtleties about what can happen between two people that might seem to be rape after the fact or might seem to be rape in the middle of what happens if you're in the middle of the act and suddenly the woman says no. You know, all of these things figure into it and it's just complicated. And nowadays, because of feminism, because feminism is an irrational uh, and foolish and anti-female philosophy, they have simplified this to the idea that if you're accused, you're somehow guilty. And that is wrong too. And it's not corrective of the original problem, which is that women aren't being paid attention to. So that's the complicated answer. I can't say to you, and no, there's no, if, if there was such a thing as rape culture, since sex is something most men want, right? And since men are stronger than women and ha- have had historically more power, rape wouldn't even be a crime if we lived in rape culture. But in fact, it is considered a very, very heinous crime. And so we don't have a rape culture. We have a very complicated system. And the law is always a blunt instrument. The law, right, you're either guilty or you're not guilty. The law is not a subtle instrument. And so it's a non-subtle, blunt instrument for dealing with a very complicated question, you know, very, very complicated issue. And people screaming and people taking one side and pounding their table doesn't make a difference. It's still a complicated issue. 
Uh, so from Taylor, dear Mr. Clavin, master of the multiverse, I will try to keep this short. My wife walked out and abandoned my son and I. Uh, she was supposedly going to the gym, but she actually went to the bank, emptied our accounts and vanished. Uh, over the last week, she turned back up. She wants to fix things. She ran off with someone who was significantly younger. She now says it was a mistake. Uh, she has lawyered up and they did something to make it so I won't get to see my son till an initial hearing in two weeks. I have sought out a lawyer of my own and we are countering all of this. I should have done it as soon as it all happened. My question is, should I get back with her? She keeps telling me she will make everything go away if I just go back to her. And it is tempting. I do love her still, but I am hurt. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but I do want my son to have a traditional family. Thank you for your time, consideration, and for all the good you do. Look, I'm, I'm going to take your word that this is, I'm going to just react to your side of this story. Uh, when you say, I still love her, I, I got to tell you, those words, every time I hear those words, I think, why? You know, she walked out, said she was going to bank, ran off with a younger man. She comes back, not like the prodigal son, oh, I'm so sorry. She comes back and says, I'll be nice to you now or I will destroy you. Right. It's blackmail. She comes back and she says, I'm going to take your son away. I'm going to take your kid away. I'm going to ruin your life. This lawyer is going to jam you down the disposal and grind your brains to mush. Or you can take me back and everything will be fine. Really? <laughs> Come on. You, what, you know, the fact that you love her should cause you to look in the mirror and say, what on earth? What on earth did I see in this woman who wants to destroy me, who is blackmailing me, manipulating me, cheating on me uh, and wants to take my kids away? My suggestion is this. I think you're right to get a lawyer. But but for the sake of your son, I think you have to try and avoid a hostile fight. And what I would say to her is, look, uh, you know, we, we're way, way before we get back to dealing with the issue of your walking out and running off with this younger man. We're way before that. The important thing now is that together we take care of our son. And so let us find, let the two lawyers sit down and, and compromise and find a compromise where we both can see our child, where there's not going to be hostility between us and start from there. And then we'll discuss whether we get back together uh, as, as the days go on. My personal point of view, you should never get back together with her. She sounds like a terrible, terrible human being. What you should do is examine why you're with her and why you still love her. But in the meantime, what you need to do is see if you can find a peaceful place where your child can get through this disaster in his life, uh, this utter disaster in his life, in as sound a way as humanly possible. Um, Gee, I'm just about out of time. I'll do a quick one from Sam. My girlfriend and I recently became engaged. We're planning on having kids. One thing that worries me is many prominent Christians and conservatives have children that grow up to be leftists. Since you're the only Daily Wire host with adult children, your children both seem to have become godly contributions to society. I figure the best person to ask for advice would be your wife, but since I can't contact her, I'm asking you, how do I raise children that grow up to become adults with an appreciation and understanding of Christian principles and values? Uh, and it says, hashtag Clavin 2024. Uh, you don't want to do that. Uh, let me say quickly, my children lived through my discovery of Christianity. So they saw me doubt. They saw me wrestle with doubt. They saw me wrestle with logic. They saw me wrestle with information. I was honest about it every step of the way. They saw me baptized. Uh, and ultimately, I think that played into their own journeys. I mean, their journeys were personal, uh, had to do with themselves. But I think it played into the journey that they saw somebody who, for some strange reason, they respected, who they knew was an honest person, if nothing else, uh, wrestle with these uh, ideas and come to that conclusion, it sort of opened the way to saying, oh, this is something that's not pure superstition. That causes me, that just happened. That was something that was providence in, in their lives and in my life. 
But that just tells me that you don't take your kids to church and tell them you believe because you believe you because you believe. You tell them why you believe. You always be honest with them. You tell them there is such a thing as doubt. You tell them there is uh, are bad people who are Christians. You tell them there are good arguments against it. This is the thing that leaves uh, Christians disarmed. Like in the movie uh, God is Not Dead, they make all the atheists stupid fools who are just uh, have psychological problems. Where no atheists have perfectly good arguments. You have to know what your arguments are against the atheists, against atheism. You have to know why you, why you believe what you believe. And if they can see that, they'll be prepared when they go to college and these clowns uh, tell them that they shouldn't believe. And I think that that's the best thing. Honesty, depth, uh, reality are the best things. I have to stop there. It doesn't matter anymore. Whatever you're planning to do, because the Clavenless Week is upon you, the chances of your surviving are almost vanishingly small. Uh, you know, there'll be darkness wailing. Oh, my. I don't even want to think about it. Anyone who does survive or maybe your children might make it. Uh, I'll be here next Friday and I'll see you on Tuesday for the Daily Wire backstage. And then on Friday, we will be back with The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Lisa Bacon. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Widowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup, Cherokee Hart. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. The backlash against Dave Chappelle grows as the media insists that any and all jokes about or criticism of LGBT people are out of bounds and automatically bigoted. Also, the high school student who shot a teacher and two classmates on Wednesday was released on bail on Thursday. What's going on there? And the New York Times claims that 900,000 children have been hospitalized with COVID, which is not even close to true. And a new study confirms that women are attracted to men who can provide for them financially. What does it say about our society that we, we need a study to confirm that obvious fact? We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show.